today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk pipeline and see if we can find out any more than we uh, knew a couple of days ago. How long is it going to take? What's the next steps? Uh, where do we go from here? Why was this, what was this process like even 10 years ago? Uh, first of all, before we get to that, let's hear what the Prime Minister had to say uh, as he's touring British Columbia and saying he's going to get the pipeline built in a land where they're trying to stop it. We need to get new markets for our oil resources, uh, and that means uh, opening up uh, in responsible, sustainable ways to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, But again, we're going to take that court ruling and look at how we need to do that in the responsible way. And I guess the big question is, why wasn't that done first? Uh, Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic analyst, GasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Dan, have you cooled off at all yet? (laughs) Now, <laughs> I've cooled off, but so is the Canadian dollar. And uh, as I tweeted to some people, much to the dismay of some uh, newfound currency experts, I said that if you made 100 bucks last week, this week it's only worth 98 with the depreciation of the loonie. Now, not all of that, of course, is related to Trans Mountain, but uh, investors are looking at this long-term uh, big uh, plays in the oil and gas sector, and they're saying uh, Canada is just not a place to put your money. It's not safe. The risk is there. Regulations don't mean uh, the paper they're written on. And so, uh, you know, in that kind of an environment, uh, it's really not a, a good situation for Canadians. Uh, our purchasing power is just devalued about 2.5% in the past week. What do, you think the, um, what do you think the Prime Minister expected to happen here? Was this all just going to go through? Because, you know, again, I'm, not st- I'm still not convinced he wants this thing, although he yeah, says I, that. I think, uh, yeah. He picked the uh, the route that had the greatest resistance, um, and uh, you know the Trans Mountain was a no brainer because the pipeline was already there. Let's uh, you know let's put that in, in perspective. Energy East it was half there, and of course uh, what he did approve was Line Three, which of course is already built. They're just replacing the same pipeline. It's still facing some opposition. We don't hear much from that, but that's primarily almost uh, and in fact one hundred percent going to the United States. So. That's uh, not something that uh, foreign-funded, U.S.-funded environmentalists are going to fight because they'll be fighting their own, and they'll be really basically dumping in their own litter box, uh, which they're not likely to do. And that's only because uh, Americans want to continue to enjoy buying Canadian oil for 37 bucks a barrel and selling it back to Vancouver motorists with about a 60-cent-a-liter premium. Now, I'm saying that in tongue-in-cheek, but that's the reality. Uh, we're selling our oil cheap to the United States. They like that, and they're able to make a lot of money. Uh, the loss annually just on uh, the 2.5 billion uh, million barrels we sell every day to the United States via pipeline, another 200,000 by rail, works out to about 70 million a day. That's a $25 billion loss, if you like, as my grandfather would say, a kick in the pants of the Canadian economy. And that doesn't include the anywhere from 60 to 104 billion, $140 billion that has fled the country over the past uh, 24 months because uh, no one wants to put any more money in this industry. And some may not understand how this means cheap oil for the United States, but basically we've got, we've got a, a large supply here, and if we can't yep. get it to other markets, we have to sell it cheaply to them. Yeah, they've got us over a barrel. Yeah. We're the only market they've got. If you don't want to export, fine, just say so, close down your industry. But, Scott, throughout the 1990s, when my government, of which I was a member of for 18 years, fought the debt and deficit, one of the, one of the things that came to our rescue was the growing amount of oil we could sell via existing pipelines to the United States. And back then, there wasn't really the criticism of pipelines and blockage of pipelines. So, you know, throughout much of the 90s and early 2000s, we were able to ramp up the amount of oil we were selling. And we were getting within 10 to $15 of world price. In other words, 
on a day like today, we'd be able to get 60 bucks a barrel when everyone's getting 65 to 75. Uh, so that in and of itself is significant. Today it's about 37. Uh, it also means, of course, that, uh, you know, we uh, were able to pay off the debt deficit. So things were already on a roll, and uh, that was fine up until we hit a limit around 2015, 2016. We started hitting capacity issues, and that's when the American uh, buyers said, uh, oh, you got a problem here. No pipelines, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be glad to buy it from you, but you're going to double the amount you sell to us or uh, trade it at half price. And that's exactly what's happened. I, I just think it's important for Canadians to understand what happens. Think of it this way. What if tomorrow all of the car manufacturers here in Ontario were told, uh, you know, you're getting X amount per unit, say 10000 per unit. Well, because you don't have the capacity or you don't have access to the United States, it's now 5000 You would see the destruction of the automotive industry virtually overnight. Well, that's what's happening in Western Canada. And for people who think, ah, oh, that's their problem over there, uh, it represents about a 20% hit to the Canadian economy. In other words, oil and gas, both those uh, uh, industries are tied represents one in five dollars generated in this country that's an awful lot of uh, importance for uh, for all of us whether we work out there whether we live out there or not so blocking this hailed by the trendies uh has done untold damage to the canadian economy much of which we haven't quite completely felt yet but we will start to feel it here in eastern canada you talked about um you talked about what what life was like when your government the last liberal government was in uh there's an interesting article in mclean's today uh, how the Trans Mountain Pipeline became a political dumpster fire by Chris Turner. Um, what's changed? And, you know, he makes reference to the Alberta Clipper and how this thing was decided on, built, bing, bang, boom, and however, yep. a couple years later was, was, was uh, you know, providing oil. So what happened between now and, and then? Well, I think I've heard it many times before, read about it as well. Um, several organizations began to zero-target Canadian oil. They didn't like it. They didn't like the intensity, the emissions. So they were going to, more than the other oil production in the world, given the nature of our good uh, our good nature, our open democracy, our yearning of fairness, uh, that we don't have a, uh, you know, we're not run by a totalitarian regime. We're not run by a kingdom. We're not run by a hand of, handful of sheiks. They said that this would be the way, this would be the soft target. And they put poured a lot of money, tens of millions of dollars, into various organizations to protest to use the legal avenue, to use the political avenue. Think of groups like Lead Now, uh, Tides Organization, Greenpeace, uh, uh, 360. There's a bunch of them that are out there, all well-funded. And part of that money is, in fact, going to a number of organizations, a number of indigenous groups here in Canada, uh, to, uh, to, ke- to basically force them to say no. In the same time, it's completely uh, obliviating and, and certainly ba- you know, uh, hip-checking all of the other good things that have been done by, you know, uh, those who are building pipelines, those who are proposing to build pipelines, those who are following the, the rules to a T to get the approval and then finally have a court somewhere down the road decide on a very finite point, which I believe is, is, is an error, by the way. Uh, the federal court justice, I think, made a huge error, uh, certainly when it came to the concern about the, uh, the South resident uh, orcas. Uh, if, if anything, uh, she got it wrong, but that's besides the point. And, of course, the same justice who in a previous case, on a reference on the Northern Gateway Pipeline that the Trudeau government killed, should not have, uh, basically set out the framework for what meaningful consultation was. The company, Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain, followed that, uh, that uh, precedent, if you will, her dictates, but she changed her mind. 
you can't inv- think of doing anything in Canada if at the end of the day people are going to change their mind about what you're supposed to do. You do things in good faith, they're throwing your face. This has a huge consequence for Canadians, it has a huge consequence for their bottom line in terms of being able to purchase all commodities that are priced in U.S. terms. That's everything we have in this country, our social programs, our health care, and our pensions. So when the country starts going into major debt and deficits, you have no one to blame but the fruitcakes who basically came together uh, to a nice bunch of people here in Canada, the International Boy Scouts, who basically said, yeah, okay, no problem. We'll listen to all sides and try to accommodate all things. And that's where Trudeau comes in. Because his argument of a social license basically gave license to this obstruction. What has the reception been like for the Prime Minister in B.C.? Uh, well, I think, look, understand that the totality of the B.C. province overwhelmingly wants this. Seven out of ten Canadians want this. That's a pretty significant number. I'll take seven out of ten in any kind of circumstance, political or otherwise. If seven out of ten want this in British Columbia, why is he worried about the politics of it all? Well, I think he's lost on both sides. He's lost credibility with those who support it in Alberta and the rest of us across the country, myself included. Uh, you know, I'm 18-year member of Parliament. I'm 38 years as a uh, guy who fought in the trenches of the Liberal Party. I can't support this kind of nonsense. And frankly, you know, if you're going to elect somebody who is the sorcerer's apprentice, who everything he touches turns really into uh, a problem, then you have a far more serious problem on your hands. You're trying to accommodate everybody. At the end of the day, and this comes back to why he may not be supporting B.C. or Alberta, in trying to appease everybody, he's satisfied nobody. Yeah, and certainly many have complained, including me, that that's been the problem since day one with uh, with this Prime Minister. So that being said, even the Prime Minister must realize now the extent of this problem. Uh, how is he going to get it built now? He's not. And I've told, I've told you this now, this will be my third or fourth interview. We've done this. Yep. This thing's going to happen. Uh, I mean... I think the next government will be a minority government, and this will be up in the air. It will be fought back and forth. Uh, Conservatives will support it, whatever that's worth, how many seats they get. The Liberals will say they support it, but won't have the numbers or the courage to proceed with it. We'll find an excuse or allow another excuse to delay uh, and and tactically allow this thing to simply die a thousand cuts or a slow death. The NDP, we know, hates it. Um, Couldn't care about the jobs that are being created or the social programs that it funds. Uh, and, of course, the Green Party. Well, they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. enough said. You talk about the social programs. I mean, the Liberals need the money. How are they going to generate the revenue if they don't get it through this? Well, you either have to do financial fudging, which Morneau is probably going to have to do, uh, get more CRA auditors to come out. And I think a lot of your listeners will know a small business, how they've been significantly harassed uh, this year, last year, compared to previous years. Uh, I think you're going to see a major shakedown, a huge uh, increase in our debt deficit. Um, at the same time, uh, I just think Canadians are going to have to get used to a lower standard of living, uh, much of it uh, uh, the result of our own making. How did this pipeline get this far without these red flags? Well, the only red flags are invented. I mean, <laughs> the ju- 16 out of 16 judges said, yes, proceed, in all the applications and all the... So how do you get 16 out of 16 and then the 17th says no when it comes to a grinding halt? How does that happen? Uh, because you've got a federal government that won't exercise and go nuclear on this option and say, all right, we're going to overturn that decision. We don't like what the judge And they could do this. They could just they say, could you know that. what, they, we, want to do that. That we, they could easily just say this is not, uh, you know, 16, out of, seven, of, 16 yeah. out of 17 is pretty good. We're if, going uh, through with this. We're going to ram if, it through. If the prime minister said this is of the national interest, it's paramount interest, he should be using you know, the notwithstanding clause and other options that he has at his disposal to say enough is enough. So he can, he does have the power to get it done. Sure he does, but he doesn't want to. 
And this idea is to kick us down the road so he doesn't have to wear it. But you know what? He's going to wear it. Yeah, and, it's uh, not going anywhere. Every, no, and every Canadian knows that. And, I, you know, when you have people who have been in the business a long time who are know and wear the same color shirt, uh, you know, <laughs> know the kind of tomfoolery and trickery and treachery and, frankly, incompetence that goes along with what the prime minister has done here, he wears this. And uh, now we have no pipelines being built. Now we have an entire industry on its knees ready to collapse at a time when the world, and this isn't even NAFTA hasn't even kicked in yet. I have no idea how those negotiations are going to go along. But if we're at this stage, uh, this doesn't bode well for the Canada I know over the next five to ten years. Uh, will it get to the point where he'll have to admit it is in the national interest? Well, he's already admitted it is in the national interest, but he doesn't want to do a damn thing about it. I mean, it's one thing to say something. It's quite another thing to do another thing. This is not a guy of action. This is a guy of words. Uh, you know, who, everything about him is cosmetic and, and, and really... Uh, but as you said, he's ticked off both on, uh, you know, people yeah. on both sides of this issue. Yeah. So yeah. really, there, there doesn't appear to be a win for him, uh, you know, on a political sense. So why not just do the right thing for the country? Well, that's right. If he believed in it, he would. Yeah. Uh, he has the power. To I'm not sure that he does, Dan. I think he's just letting other people come to that conclusion rather than him wanting to tell us. Yeah. You know what, though? We can't wait on this. If you're going to make a, you're going to make a proposal in 2013 and you don't get a decision, you actually don't find out at least till 2021. Seven years to build a pipeline when the United States can do it in 18 months to 24 months is, is insane. And I think Canadians have got to understand we are being bureaucratized. Uh, we are being, uh, uh, you know, um, litigated. We are being challenged by people who have no other interest in Canada but their own selfish views that uh, they had to bury it in the ground. If Canadians want to go down this road of supporting what was called the Leap Manifesto, leave all of our resources in the ground, then we can start to get used to the idea of living the state of nature, eating egg torrents, and wearing animal skins. By because the way, it's not, it's, and, and it's not staying down in the ground, Dan. It's just going up, up top on rail, isn't it? I mean, it's being transported by rail in, at increasingly increasing amounts. That scared everybody. Uh, you got Lac-Mégantic 2.0, three times, has, has, has three times more rail moving now than there was 10 years ago crude. But think of it another way. Every single day in the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan, there are two to 3,000 tankers, trucks, driving over the border bringing crude. The Americans want our oil, not just because of the price. The other thing that you have to recognize is that whether your refinery in Washington State, who's buying our oil for 23 cents, processing it with transportation for another 10 or 15, and selling it back to our wonderful folks in Vancouver for 90 cents a liter, picking up a cool net 60 cents a liter, you got to recognize that there's a lot of desperate ways in which we can get product to market. And... Uh, you know, that may be the other alternative. What I also think will happen, and this may not affect us, but it will certainly affect uh, uh, Vancouver, get ready for new applications to use the existing 300,000 barrels, not to send down gasoline, but instead instead send down heavy oil to the U.S. market or in, to waiting ships. Either way, once the conditions are uh, are exhausted by the NEB on the existing pipeline, I expect that that pipeline will be once again restored to what it was back in the 50s, devoted exclusively to heavy, or rather at that time, exclusively to oil. That's the thing. I'm not sure people realize that they're not stopping anything by this. They're just changing the mode of transportation. Precisely. Well, look, of the 300,000 barrels that goes down every day, 50,000 of that is probably gasoline, diesel. The rest is uh, is light oil and heavy oil. So it's still going to happen. It's still happening, but unfortunately it's too small we need to have another pipeline to dedicate a much greater amount of our oil to uh, the rest of the world. By the way, think about uh, how much uh, the steel industry would be positively impacted by this. Hmm. You announced that you're going to be putting in 1,100 square kilometers, not square, but 1,100 kilometers of an additional pipeline 
that's that's jobs for welders, that's job for downstream in the uh, yeah. in the cement industry, in the steel industry, the lead industry. It'd be good for Canada, but of course, you know, we can't talk about those things because we actually live in an environment where people believe that the sky is falling, that the hot day we're having today is all about climate change. You know, we can't have cold winters, we can't have wet uh, falls and springs, and we can't have, uh, you know, we can't have warm summers. It, it, this is this narrative has basically twisted our minds to such an extent that we're actually doing harm to ourselves, both in the short term and long term as a country. What does this do to the prime minister's relationship with indigenous peoples, indigenous groups? I mean, because he certainly has sold that as you know he's the best out of any prime minister there's ever been, and this is where the buck stops, and and the, you know uh, we're looking after you, and and clearly that wasn't the case here. He's going to have to talk to the forty-seven tribes along the way who signed on unanimously and said, wait a minute, two that are not directly connected to us win the day when the 47 of us who had hope for our, our, our nation, for our future, for our children, everybody from monitoring to well, this is, these are permanent jobs. These aren't just fly at night things. Uh, this is investments, this is revenue that would go to every one of those uh, indigenous organizations uh, all along the pipeline. Those guys are now out, as are the 8,000 workers who began work on this just a couple of weeks ago. It's a really, it's a, it's an at, at, an absolute fetid mess. It hurts the wrong people, and within the indigenous community, the vast majority have now been sidelined. How are they going to make uh, ends meet? Uh, they're going to continue to have to rely on handouts from Ottawa. No, this would have been an opportunity, but uh, two groups got together, well funded by the foreign organizations, and now you have a very serious problem in your hands. The minority of indigenous groups who have nothing to do with this pipeline or very little to do with the pipeline have now uh, had a much larger voice than those who are directly impacted, who constitute the majority. How does the Prime Minister sell this? He doesn't. He can't. He's done. Uh, Look, (laughs) I've worked for a number of Prime Ministers, going back to his father. Uh, You can't can't walk... You can't uh, suck and blow it. You can't suck and blow at the same time. You've got to make a call. Well, you know, I think it's uh, as... uh, uh, Harry, not Harry Truman, but uh, as uh, Lyndon B. Johnson would have said, you can't uh, walk and part at the same time. Yeah. All right, Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic Analyst, GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Enjoy the day. Thanks, you, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. NAFTA talks have resumed today in the United States. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say yesterday in B.C. about this all getting back together. We've made it very clear uh, that defending that cultural exemption is something that is fundamental uh, to Canadians. And again, we will not sign a deal that is bad for Canada. And quite frankly, eliminating a a cultural exemption uh, would be bad for Canadians. All right, cultural exemption, specifically what he was talking about there, but also uh, chatter in regard to uh, supply management in the dairy industry. Lots of uh, issues on the table yet. Let's bring in Jerry Diaz, President Unifor. He is with us now. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Pleasure as always, Vine. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, lots of rhetoric over the past week. Obviously, uh, Donald Trump signing the deal with Mexico, or at least agreeing in part to it, and then putting the pressure on Canada to get something done before last weekend. Uh, and, and now, of course, back at the table today. What's different with this set of negotiations this time as opposed to what we've been doing in the past? Well, first of all, let's start with Otto. We have come miles from where we were over the last 24 years, to really fix the industry, the auto industry, to really start to make some inroads uh, that says that 40 to 45% of a car, light trucks, have to be built with labor at $16 an hour. 
um, really stops, in my opinion, the mass exodus of jobs from Canada, the United States, and Mexico. When you start to think about increasing the amount of content that goes into the sole tariff free, that means the wrestling of work from Europe and Asia. So I think there's a, a huge step forward on the labor table. And anyway, so I think we're in a much better position than today than we have been over the last 24 years. When, but, sorry, go uh, ahead. But still, of course, there's some major hurdles that we need to get over. Uh, when uh, the, the talks with Canada went south, and of course, uh, no pun intended, and they started negotiating with Mexico, there were lots uh, that were concerned. But obviously, you and your union happy, especially with what was accomplished in Mexico. What about those that say this is less about wages, more about automation? Oh, that argument would work if they didn't open eight auto plants in Mexico if they weren't opening two more. The facts are they sold 18.5 million vehicles in the North American market last year. Uh, that's more, or that we built, excuse me. So, you know, somebody's building the cars. This is that American workers aren't building the cars. It's Mexican workers. This argument that somehow automation has gotten rid of all the jobs, nice try. The cars are still being built. It's just by different people. Hmm. The fact that we were excluded from the Mexico talks and then they went beyond, I guess, just the the uh, issues you're speaking of, uh, does that matter? Did that concern you at all? Because it seemed as if we were being pushed out. Did this have to happen? Well, could we have? Could we? Well, could well, all three have done this? Well, you know what? The it's it's tough to have a deal with all three parties at the table at once. It's uh, there's so many different interests, but the key issue. And I just want to remind you of what started the NAFTA renegotiations in the first place. It was Donald Trump driving through the industrial heartland of the United States, looking at shuttered auto plants, saying this is uh, as a direct result of the low wages in Mexico. So ultimately, the United States and Mexico were going to tangle. Happen. So people believe that somehow Canada were excluded. But during that whole time period that the U.S. was talking to Mexico, Canada was talking to both the United States and Mexico as well. You will find that a lot of changes, for example, in the auto industry, some of the agreements made on the labor issues surrounding Mexico were Canadian proposals. So, yes, we were not at the table formally, but, yes, we are clearly in the background playing a role. Jerry, way back when, when this was all signed some 20-plus years ago, uh, I remember the first time around, uh, the unions were against this. Now it seems that when there was talk of blowing it up, the unions were upset. What has changed over time? Why has this worked out? Has this been good for the worker? What's your thoughts on this whole thing from beginning to end? Well, for me, the worst thing that could happen is just re-signing the original agreement because... The original NAFTA was a colossal disaster, I will argue. It was everything that the labor movement said it would be. We lost about 5,000 manufacturing jobs in Ontario. Um, we closed four auto plants. We closed 10 in the United States. They opened eight in Mexico. They're opening two more. The BMW plant that opens next year, uh, the workers will make a dollar ten an hour, or were going to prior to this. But pre-NAFTA, we used to have a trade surplus in manufacturing. Today, we have a $120 billion deficit. So it's not a question of us embracing it. It's a straight question of us playing a role in fixing it. It's easy to sit back and criticize, but then when you have an opportunity to participate, you better get in, roll up your sleeve, and get your hands dirty. And that's exactly what Unifor is doing, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm not going to sit on the outside when I have something to offer. And then at the end of the day, just criticize the deal. It's, 
you know, a lot of people like to criticize but don't want to roll up their sleeves and get dirty. I, I prefer to give it the best shot I can so that working-class people, for the first time, have a voice at the bargaining table. What are your thoughts on what the President of the United States has, has tweeted recently, uh, especially in regard to uh, Richard, uh, Richard Trumka, who is the head of the AFL and CIO, and said on Fox News that uh, he, he couldn't see how an integrated uh, economy between Canada and Mexico and the United States, uh, he, he couldn't see any other option or anything that didn't include Canada. And the, and, uh, the President spoke out against that. What are your thoughts on, on making such a move? Well, there's no question. Mr. Trump was completely correct as the head of the AFL-CIO. Our industries are so intertwined that somehow believing we're going to have a bilateral agreement excluding Canada and that somehow there would be this mass migration of jobs from Canada to the United States, it's not going to work. And that's why Trumpka and even myself are saying on industries or industries such as auto, they are so intertwined that it's naive to believe that you can blow out night and things are going to change because it just doesn't work that way. Uh, the uh, Trump came right out very specifically saying it's not going to work. And he said that because he's right. And as much as Trump is full of bluster and full of nonsense, at the end of the day, his advisors, fellow Republicans, the business community, the labor community, everybody's saying to him, you're not going to be able to exclude Canada. So, Either everybody is wrong and Donald Trump is right, or he's smarter than everybody, and I doubt that very much. All right. One more question, Jerry, then I'll let you go. Uh, what does your gut tell you here? Where is this going? It seems like we're, we're now, uh, you know, push has come to shove. Will we have to give more in order to get this done? We, are, we surrendered so much during the initial NAFTA. We gave the United States access to our water, our oil, our energy. Uh, they wrestled so much from us 24 years ago. If, in fact, they end up with a comparable deal, that would be enough. Under no circumstances should we ever surrender our cultural identity. I don't know how we can sign a trade agreement that doesn't have a dispute mechanism. Can you imagine dealing with the Donald Trump administration where all disputes are handled in U.S. courts? Hmm. doesn't make any sense to me, so... Do I believe we're going to get a deal? It'll be tough this, but I do believe a deal is there for the taking. When do you think this will all come down? When will we? When will we stop talking about this? Well, I dropped my crystal ball this morning, <laughs> but hopefully it'll be done within the next three days. All right, Jerry Diaz has been with us, President Unifor. Jerry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great day today. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about with Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant and, of course, uh, principal at uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. The whole uh, Kaepernick uh, Just Do It campaign, uh, the new book from uh, Bob, uh, Bob Woodward in regard to Donald Trump, and uh, Models on Cosmo. Let's bring her in. Alyssa Freeman is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Do we have a day to discuss all this, Scott? I know. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm guessing <laughs> uh, we're not even going to get to the last one there. Sorry, Cosmo, you're gone. Uh, let's, start, let's start with the Trump uh, book because uh, it's the latest news. Uh, is this the same as an Amorosa or a Fire and Fury? No. I mean, this is Bob Woodward. This is Woodward and Bernstein. Yep. This is All the President's Men, one of my favorite movies. You know, uh, Bob Woodward has a huge reputation in, in Washington and also among investigative journalists. 
And you would tend to think that when he writes a book, he'll probably cross his T's and dot his I's. Um, the big thing about what he's got, from what I understand, is that he has actual taped conversations, including one from Trump, where he says, well, you know, I did try to talk with you. Yeah. I, I approached six or seven people, but I couldn't get through. And Trump says, well, listen, had I known about that, I know you're a, you know, you're a good guy. Do you buy or, that? Do you buy that, that he didn't know about this? Um, maybe. You know, I mean, it, when you talk... Because I have a feeling if you if there's rumor floating around that Bob Woodward wants to talk to you, I think you're going to get that message. Well, I think so, but I also think that Trump's inner circle, those people that, that surround him, I think that they tell him things on an, on an as-needed basis. So, you know, based on that, you, you have to... I think you have to understand that, you know, how much you're going to get your boss worked up over knowing that he flip-flops and changes his ideas from one second to the next. So based on that, you think, well, you know what, does he need to know that Bob Woodward wants to talk to him? I mean, surely he knows who Woodward and Bernstein are. Is this something that we're dealing with X, Y, and Z? Do we really want to bother him with this now? So, yeah, I kind of do buy it that maybe he wasn't told. It it could very well be. And that's just a a call that John Kelly or maybe some of the other sort of staffers in in the inner circle will make. Uh, you'd think that they'd get together and come up with a strategy rather than, okay, let's just not tell the president. Because obviously there is some credibility with Woodward there. So, I mean, how can you just put a bag over his head and hope he doesn't notice? (laughs) I mean, is that really a strategy here? Well, I kind of think that as these things go on, that it's, it's really... You know, Scott, that's a really difficult one to answer. I mean, I have to tell you, is it a strategy? I mean, the White House has had to, you know, deal with a number of different things. So... As a result, um, it's just one of many fires burning. It's just one of many fires burning. <laughs> you, you sort of prioritize what you think you need to put out. So, um, has and again, it's too early because we don't know everything in this book. We're just getting excerpts at this at this point. But I'm guessing most of the juicy stuff will have surfaced soon. Uh, has he told us anything new that's really uh, uh, damaging to the president, or has he just confirmed what all of this other stuff has said? You know, I don't know much about the contents, and I know that you know about as much as I do, Scott. So uh, it seems that what Bob Woodward will do is confirm a lot of what we may have already heard, that, you know, that it's a ship of fools, that people don't know which way, you know, to turn, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So, you know, there have been some sources, you know, for example, the author of Fire and Fury, there were like a lot of, um, you know, errors in that, there were a lot of different examples, but yet none of it could really be substantiated. Then you have Omarosa, who is basically has an axe to grind. And she was taught at the knee of the master on how to do this. Mm. And that was definitely Donald Trump himself. However, you know, Bob Woodward, he is sort of in a, he's sort of in a stratosphere of his own. So I think that people, you know, he also doesn't want to damage the reputation that he has built since blowing open the Watergate story. You bring up so, a valid point. Why even weigh in on this? Why did he do this? You know, well, maybe Bob Woodward feels that, you know, this is his last hurrah and that he uh, provides credibility and that he is, you know, is able to sort of put a pin on all of this that we've been wondering about Hmm. based on his past record of investigative reporting. Uh, You know, uh, all of these events go back to when we first uh, found out he was running for president. Any of these events would have sunk any leader. Teflon Don, nothing seems to stick. Will this matter after a news cycle? 
You know, we have talked about this before, and what's interesting is this, is that I've never seen an administration so adept on turning the channel as I have the Trump administration. So what, just when we think that this is it, this is the one thing that the American people are all going to get to get behind no matter what the political stripe they, they represent, then the next day, whoop, it's off the radar, and it's on to the next. And I is that because there's just so much of it? I, I think that there's uh, a lot of it, but I think that there's a lot of stuff that they try and fill and drive their own narrative through the pipeline. And that's something that a lot of companies try to do, Scott. Like when you want to change the channel, sometimes you wait for some good news. Like if the government is being hammered on an issue, the one thing that they'll do is that they'll find whatever good news they have in order to put in the pipeline. But these guys don't wait. They don't wait. They create their own news. And just when they were getting hammered over the president's uh, treatment over John McCain, then what happens is, is that they, um, they change the channel and they talk about the economy or they talk about the NFL. But it's not, when they, it's, it it's not like when they change the channel, oh, all of a sudden there's something warm and fuzzy on. It's the same crap. It's the same. It's another story. It's another damaging story. Well, you know what, they managed to change the channel in a way that isn't always with a damaging story. I have to say that it's not always that. Just as when you think that the damaging story is there, that they managed to brush it off the table and replace it with something else. The damaging stories don't, um, they, listen, sometimes they put themselves within the eye of the storm of a damaging story, but more often than not, they, they take the damage and they have to react to it. And, and heaven knows that Sarah Huckabee Sanders has become an absolute you know, artist at doing this. And then right after that, they come out with some other narrative. And they've been doing this time and time and time again. And depending on what the narrative is, Scott, it doesn't really affect their base. No. This whole business about Manafort, um, you know, really hasn't affected their base. They're like, okay, well, we don't care about the Russian thing. Like, just move on. It doesn't affect me as an American. Bye. I don't care. Uh, you know, you would have thought that the McCain narrative would have been a little bit more uh, of, of something stronger, something that would actually br- bring um, both especially, with Spe- especially with especially veterans, especially with veterans, especially with veterans who did who did call him out on it, and yeah, you know, it was bad. But then, then you and also the McCain funeral itself, which mm. people called the biggest resistance meeting to date. Um, even Meghan McCain made a huge <laughs> speech, and George Bush alluded to the Trumpian era, and Barack Obama alluded to the Trumpian era in unsavory terms. But still, people look at the Dow. The Dow was blown through 26,000, and who knows if that's because of Trump or, or policies that the Obama administration put in. But that's what people see. So they only understand what they understand. And when things get too complicated, I think especially specifically with his base, they're like, okay, well, listen, that, that's just a Washington thing. That has nothing to do with me. Um, do you think that being said that they are nibbling away at this? And by that, I mean, you, you know, yeah, no one cares. No one cares. But, you know, when you keep getting negative information after negative information, and again, eventually you insult everybody. I mean, it was like the tweet to um, uh, the head of the AFL. Uh, in regard to uh, the NAFTA negotiations, basically cutting up the head of the union. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're taking shots at people that, uh, on both sides, I guess. Nobody, there's nobody who was not fair game as far as Trump is concerned. Nobody. And, you know, I know we're going to be talking about this, like, look at Nike. 
you know, their shares dropped. I guess they had, I don't know, four million or four billion erased off the bottom line yesterday. But honestly, they've had such a good year that it's a bit of a drop in the bucket. But yet, you know, Trump will say, you know, they're sinking just like the NFL is sinking. Yeah. Not necessarily so, not really backed up by facts, but it's just what he thinks. So, uh, you know, people either have to choose to react or not to react. So, you know, with respect to the NAFTA negotiations, I've been hearing on the news that, you know, we take uh, the Canadian delegation is taking everything seriously that Trump says, whether he, we think he's saying it in hy- uh, uh, hyperbolically uh, with exaggeration or whether he really means it. So uh, that- it, it's hard to know. He has a he has he said he said at the beginning, Twitter is a powerful medium. I can talk to millions of people so easily and I'm going to use it. And he has. After a while, though, uh, it seems like everyone sucks, everyone's sinking, everyone's, you know, again, as you said, he'll insult anybody. So at what point does everybody just say, you know what, I I can't see what we've got out of this? I mean, the point will come in November at the midterm, Scott. So you're already. Okay, let's talk about the timing of this book and the midterms. Does that make a dent? Hmm. It would have been a better dent had it been a week out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I almost think that John McCain himself would have preferred to have passed, you know, the week before the midterms hmm. um, <laughs> had he had anything to do with it. But, uh, you know, I often think and I wonder if they will be the Trump administration will feel death by a thousand cuts. And it's one issue uh, upon another, upon yeah. another and upon another. And will they fall under the weight of all those cumulatively of all those issues. And that remains to be seen. So some people are predicting a blue wave and that Congress will go Democrat. So we can only see. We can only see the impact by the way people, if they A, turn out and B, vote. All right, let's talk about Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Is this a win for Nike? You know, it's really interesting. When a, when a company is as big as Nike and has used to been doing advertising in the way that they've been doing, which is very apparel-driven, apparel-driven, aligned with a sports superstar, this doesn't d- d- um, deviate from the sports su- superstar alignment, but it does deviate from the message. And when you want to do this message, you, A, have to think of yourself as pretty squeaky clean or having um, be as clean as possible, B, you have to be get ready for the backlash. Like in a boardroom, somebody will say, well, this will definitely start a conversation. This is starting more than a conversation. If you, you know, if you look at yesterday with people burning their socks, their Nike socks, it was starting more of a fire. Hmm. So there is some sort of corporate responsibility that when you come up with something as divisive that really speaks to what is now the great divide, one of the great things dividing Americans, you know, you do have some corporate responsibility for the reaction to that. Some people are saying that, oh, you know, they're not going to recover from this. You know, they dropped uh, 4% in their stocks. And most stock watchers, I was reading this morning, are like, okay, well, this is a bit of a blip and it doesn't really matter because Nike investors care about one thing, sell shoes. Yeah. The other thing, too, is is that 58% of Nike's market share is international. And, you know, the international community, no matter who you are, I don't think is – you know, holding um, the hmm. U.S. of A. up in any great uh, high ideal at this moment. So I don't think it's going to affect that market. Will it affect some of the market share in the U.S. or in North America? Maybe. But I think that the people protesting are not necessarily huge buyers of Nike. And they may have gotten a pair of Nike socks, but it could have also been in a grab bag in an event. So I don't know how much of a hit they're going to take. I, you know, 
24 hours later, I'm reading that they achieved four, because of all the mentions, there's, you know, measurements mm-hmm. that you can uh, put to this, that they have achieved something to the effect of $43 million in media value. Mm-hmm. So had they chosen to run an ad campaign that would uh, create the impressions and the reach that this uh, initiative has done, they would have had to spend $43 million. Now, already we know that Nike did spend to create this ad campaign, but honestly, I would probably say that the investment has now been leveraged two to one. Is it because it doesn't matter what side of the fence you are on this issue, at least Nike is sticking up for something? I think it is. And I think that, you know, it comes to a point where you think, okay, are we going to do the same old, same old, or are we actually going to put a stake in the ground? And if you're going to put a stake in the ground as a corporation, you better be sure that you're, you know, the people that work for you are okay with that, that your shareholders are okay with that, that investors, that the consumer is okay with that. And you have to believe that they've done their homework in terms of research on that. And listen, you know, I always tell my clients, there's 20% reason not to do anything or to, you know, uh, shy away from a campaign. And I'm sure that they went through all the pros and cons and decided to go with it. So right now, in a 24-hour aftermath, they're looking pretty good. But that is a very, very small window. And, you know, there's still more that remains to be seen. I think long-term, it will only get stronger for them. I think there'll be more people buying shoes than burning them in the end. That being said, are they, is Nike making us face an important issue, or are they exploiting a divisive issue? Well, some people say that they are exploiting it. And, you know, look who wears a lot of their apparel and they're still sponsors within the NFL and the many sports organizations. But I think that any sort of advertising or marketing is an exploitation of something, whether it's an idea or an ideal. So, you know, you could look at it as a way of being uh, of exploitation. But I would have to say that I I think that's a bit of a minority opinion um, of this strategy. I would have to say that, you know, they drew a line in the stand and they're standing there with it. And I think it also bears noticing that, you know, people are burning their socks, but not their $300 Jordans. That's a good point. Boy, mom and dad would get cranky if they saw that. I know I would. (laughs) All right. So what about the NFL? How do they play this? Because, you know, the NFL, you know, the CFL, or sorry, the NFL and Nike clients, obviously business partners. I mean, uh, Nike supplies all the, all the uniforms and such. Is, is Nike playing both sides of the street here? Uh, You know, taking from, you know, uh, biting the hand that feeds them per se. I'm sure that Nike has inked a very long-term deal with the NFL. So the NFL is all, going to, all of a sudden going to say, okay, well, we're not going to honor this because they'd be, you know, liable to be held up in court and they'd still have to go, you know, have to pay out. So uh, the NFL is actually, I believe, being very quiet about this. Um, the NFL is really bad at dealing with controversy to begin with. Um, you know, they haven't, uh, from what I've seen, Scott, I really haven't seen a statement come out from the NFL and it, it's a tough one because he's also suing them because they believe in there, there was collusion for the owner. So I think the NFL is in a very tough spot because they're in litigation right now and their lawyers are probably say it's best not to say it. So how do you think the, how do you think the United States, the, how do you think Americans are reacting to this? Do you think the majority are behind this? Do you think the majority are against it? How divisive is this? What, what do you think Americans are talking about today? I mean, I will tell you, I know what they were talking about yesterday because I just typed in hashtag Nike boycott. And Scott, I had to stop reading. I had to stop reading because some of these statements were so angry and hate-filled and vitriolic. It's, I thought, you know, if I want to know what's wrong with America today, just keep reading. Yeah. 
And whereas, I mean, you're not going to get a lot of positive um, tweets with the hashtag Nike boycott unless somebody's trying to make a real point. And I guess if I had just searched hashtag Nike, that I would have gotten a whole different sort of narrative stream. But yeah. under Nike boycott, it was angry and it was ugly. So I, I think that with most of these divisive issues, you know, you're getting sort of a, I don't know, it, it's hard to put a percentage on it. Really Does is. Nike care at this point? I mean, is Ni- the, the ad's done its job, they've got their publicity, they've done everything. Is it now up to the NFL to react in some way? Well, like I said, they're in litigation with Colin Kaepernick right now. So will the NFL react? I don't know. You know, when you're in litigation, you basically don't comment. That's what? Kind uh, of a obviously, Nike. Strategy. Obviously, Nike has has uh, you know feels that this that Kaepernick will will draw attention to their brand. What about other people in the NFL? What about a team? You know, he's getting kind of old to play now. But what about if uh, you know a team signs him to the front office? I mean, what about the brand of Kaepernick? The brand of Kaepernick, I don't think that Colin Kaepernick ever cares if he throws another pass in the NFL. No, he doesn't need to now. He doesn't need to now. So, you know, they've basically taken somebody who decided, some people are comparing him to Muhammad Ali, who also had uh, anti-war stances and was unable to box for four years, perhaps the greatest years of his prime. Now, I really hate to compare Ali to Kaepernick because I think they're in totally two different, we're talking about two different instances and two different types of athletes here. But some people are comparing that, and it seems that we haven't really moved that the needle that far when you um, conscientiously object to what we feel are American ideals. Uh, should Donald Trump stay out of this? He won't. <laughs> he won't. And thank goodness. <laughs> and thank goodness for that. It has got too much bait for Donald Trump to stay out of this. Should he stay out of this? He should stay out of a lot of stuff, Scott, but he doesn't. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant and, of course, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.